Church family, if you have your copy of God's Word, I'd like for you to find the book of 1 Corinthians with me this morning. And when you find the book of 1 Corinthians, I want to invite you to continue worshiping with me as we hear from the Lord. He has certainly heard from you this morning, and your voices were beautiful. One of the great tools of hearing the Word of God is the softening of our hearts through the worship of the God of the Word. So we have worshiped the God of the Word. Now let us together hear the Word of the God we worship. I want to begin a new sermon series with you in the book of 1 Corinthians, specifically in chapter 11 and chapter 12. Now, if you are a guest of ours, you might not know this, and that's perfectly fine, but we've been walking through the book of 1 Corinthians for several months now, and we're going through it chapter by chapter, paragraph by paragraph, line by line, word by word, verse by verse. And we come today to a sermon series I would like to entitle Church matters because church does matter in fact i thought about it this way church matters so church matters matter it matters to the lord how we handle the matters that arise within our faith family if it matters to him well then it should matter to us paul the apostle paul ministered in corinth for almost three years when he left the church lost its way When he found this out, he was hurt. There was some righteous frustration and anger, but mainly there was dear, beloved concern. History did not preserve two of the four letters he wrote to the Corinthian church. We have two that the Holy Spirit chose to preserve in the scriptures, also called the canon of scripture, and two he references, so we know they exist, But the Holy Spirit did not choose through the hands of men to preserve those as inerrant, inspired words of God. Of the two letters we have, they're called 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and they're written to this church because this church was plagued by a multitude of issues. Now, some of them are very sinister and they're very serious in nature. Others of them, though, we might kind of categorize as matters within the church for the church to be the church your presence in this service this morning means that to a certain degree church matters to you we are a voluntary organization in other words none of you came here today because you were forced to come here unless you are a minor and you didn't want to get out of bed and your mom and dad told you but most of you are here of your own volition you want to be here and and i would just remind you of why series like this matters whenever i teach pastoral ministry in a seminary context one of the things i remind young pastors is that your number one job is not to reach the world for christ usually that gets their attention because we know one of the purposes of the church is to be a torchbearer of the gospel in other words one of the purposes of church at the mill is to make the gospel known to our community, to our state, to our nation, and to our world. And we put our money where our mouth is, and hundreds of thousands of dollars leave this campus due to your generosity for missions. We send missions teams all over the world. We have a dynamic missions ministry under the leadership of a missions pastor, and they think about that all the time. That is their desire. 
I hope you know that you'll be challenged at this church to go out and share your faith. And I want you to make much of Christ in your conversations. And so we challenge one another to share the gospel. And so when I say what I say to those young pastoral students, it normally causes them to raise their eyebrows, to back up a bit. But let me quantify and qualify my statement. The number one job of a pastor is not to reach the world for Christ, it is to shepherd his flock. It is to build up the church. In other words, the health and the strength of the Christians in the church always determine the power and the effectiveness of the church's witness in the world, which is why we believe the whole church needs the whole word of God. And that's especially true today because next week we'll see that Paul was dealing with the Lord's Supper. In a few weeks, we'll see where Paul's dealing with prophecy and what to do with it. A few weeks after that, we're going to talk about spiritual gifts and what they mean to us. But we come today to the exciting subject of women wearing head coverings in church. If you don't believe my God has a sense of humor, last Sunday night, we had hundreds and hundreds, almost 2,000 women worshiping the Lord in this room at our first ever Upstate Women's Conference. It was an incredible event. I sat at the very back during worship, and there was a point there where our guest worship leader turned down all the volume, and it was just the voices, angelic voices, of 2,000 women singing to the Lord. It was one of the most powerful moments I've ever witnessed in this service. I was so excited. And then I get to my desk Monday morning, and I open up the Bible, and it's about women wearing head coverings to church. And I couldn't help but laugh. I'm like, Lord, you mess with me, right? But why do I refuse to skip passages that may be unfamiliar, that might be a little odd, that might be cumbersome? I'm always reminded of what Paul told Timothy. He said, Timothy, the aim, the goal of our instruction is love. Love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. If you love your people, you'll give them the whole word. Why the whole word? What does the Bible say about the word? Well, Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy, all Scripture, even Scriptures that you and I might struggle to relate to, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So if you love the whole church and you believe in the whole word, then you give the whole church the whole word. And actually, the more I studied this passage this week, the more I recognize how God has a word for both you and me, male and female, in this room. So allow me the privilege of preaching 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through verse 16, in a sermon I would call covered. Now let's read this passage together. I'll read it aloud. You read it along with me silently. Verse 1 of chapter 11 is really a continuation of the last paragraph of chapter 10. The true beginning of chapter 11 in the new, subje in the new subject in the original language is seen in verse 2, and so I'll begin in verse 2. Paul writes, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays 
or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays and prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Since it is the same as if her husband or her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful, verse 6, for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her, co- let her, cover, let her cover her head. Verse 7. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman, verse 12. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. All things are from God, he finishes here. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. You clear? (laughs) Y'all just want to pray and go eat? (laughs) Sorry, you're not getting out of here. What do you do with a passage like this? You do what you do with every other passage. You study it. You find the biblical meaning or the meaning of the biblical text, you interpret it within its context, you pay attention to the nuance of the language, and then you bring to bear the universal principles and truths to your life and to my life, and there is one here. In fact, for simplicity's sake, allow me to give you the overarching one principle. Here it is. Christians are called to conform to the customs of our culture which communicate the conviction of our created purpose. That's a mouthful. I'm going to read it again. As a Christ follower, if you're here today and you're exploring who Jesus is, this is not applicable to you. We want you to come to know Christ. We can't make you do that, but we would love to share with you after the service how to come to know Jesus. But for many of you that I have the privilege of edifying and encouraging and admonishing weekly, you have already made a decision in your life to trust Christ. If you've made a decision to trust Christ, then the principle from this text in your life is very clear. You're called to conform to the customs of your culture, which communicate the convictions of your created purpose. Now, I'm going to allow this principle to simply be the structure, the bones, the skeleton of us unpacking and understanding this text. Let's take the first part. We are called to conform to the customs of our culture. We have to first start with an understanding of what Paul is dealing with. What is a custom? The English dictionary would define it this way. A traditional and widely accepted way of behaving or doing something that is specific to a particular society, place, or time. Often when we travel internationally, You do notice that people look different ethnically, depending on what part of the world. They may appear different racially, 
They may physically look different depending on their nation of origin. But what you quickly find out is that the color of someone's skin is not nearly as differentiating, not nearly as distinctive as the massive difference in the customs of the culture. Now, you don't often think about your own customs because we normally only notice the customs that we're not accustomed to. We forget that we are, our lives are filled with customs. Think about some customs in your life today. Colin Kaepernick, an NFL quarterback several years ago, set off a firestorm when he refused to stand and salute and recite the Pledge of Allegiance, or rather to stand during the national anthem. One of the customs of our culture is the Pledge of Allegiance. I don't have to teach you about this. That's not my subject. My subject is God's Word. But you already know when you're taught as a grade school to stand, find the flag, which end of the ball field is it on, where is it hanging in the gymnasium, where is it in the classroom, to stand toward the flag at attention, to look at the flag. If you are in service or have been in service, some may choose to salute the flag. Citizens like myself who've never served in our armed forces, we place our hand over our heart and we recite, we recite the Pledge of Allegiance. And this is an act of great patriotism. It is our custom. It would not offend me in the least if I were visiting another country somewhere and they did not know the Pledge of Allegiance. They are not Americans. Think about the romantic customs even of our day. The digital communication that young people have now has threatened this, but it is the custom of our culture and it should be the demand of every young woman in this room that you be asked out in person. Look her in the eye, boys. Speak to her. Acknowledge her. Stop messaging her and walk up to her and speak to her. And when you ask for a woman or a young woman to go out with you, you then are expected to arrange the date, to pay for her meal, to open the door, to be a gentleman. And then if that progresses to the point that you're ready to spend your life with someone, it is our custom that the man, the future husband, purchase the ring, that he make the arrangements, that he makes the proposal. It's very customary to approach the father and the mother of the bride and to ask for their permission to take their daughter's hand in marriage. And then by the time we get to the wedding, that is a ceremony wrought with customs. And the central figure of a Christian wedding, of course, spiritually is Christ. But physically, it's about the bride, baby. The groom looks like the rest of them. You can't even tell which one he is. He's just the one standing closest to the preacher and looking awful nervous. But when the pastor or the officiant asks everyone to stand and the back doors of the church, the chapel, the barn, or the park are opened, in steps the bride, and she's dressed better than every woman in the house. This is her day, and she is adorned in white, and she is beautiful, and you stand in honor of her, and she comes down, and she's the central figure because symbolically, and I believe biblically, she is transferring her life from the care of one family to the care of another, which is why at the conclusion of the ceremony, the pastor will turn and introduce them by one name, Mr. and Mrs., and then the pastor mentions or says the name of the groom, and in that moment, she takes his last name. There is symbolism in that. 
in that you are recognizing I, as a young woman, the woman would say, have been born and raised and reared and loved in this home, and now I am coming to be loved and cared for in this home, and the man is saying, I am taking the responsibility not only of myself, but to emulate the men in my family and to receive unto myself this woman who will share her life with me. We will share a home together, a bed together, children together, finances together, careers together, struggle together, sickness and health together. This is a great custom of our culture. We also have customs here in this neck of the woods. Some of you were not privileged to be from the South, but you got here as fast as you could. We teach our children to say, yes, sir, and no, sir, and yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am. And sometimes I'll be corrected by a woman who doesn't like being referred to as ma'am. And I just always remind them, I'm not really doing it for you. My grandmother will come back from the grave, and she will get me if I don't say, hello, ma'am, how are you sir and, and, and we teach young men you stand up when you introduce yourself to somebody you put a hand forward don't hand them a limp dish rag you shake them with a firm handshake look them in the eye and speak to them we also teach our children it's disrespectful not to acknowledge an adult and speak to an adult when an adult acknowledges you think about age appropriate language after the service today, somewhere out in the concourse, my four-year-old little girl will come up to me, and whether or not she wants me to, I'll pick her up, I'll kiss her on the cheek, I'll say, hey, baby. I may even pat her on the bottom and squeeze her and set her down. If I did that to any other woman in the room, <laughs> it would be rather awkward. It is the context of my relationship with her and her age that determines a customary Greeting. I know the Bible says greet one another with a holy kiss. You just keep that for your wife. I don't want your kiss. <laughs> what about the respect for the elderly? You give up. You give up your seat for someone who is older than you. When one of our beloved church members passes away, we casserole one another. It is a verb. We, we also dress differently for a funeral. If you're going to work out this week at some point, which I hope you do, You'll have a hoodie on because it's cold. You, you may have shorts on, some sort of workout pants, hat on backwards, water bottle. But if your grandmother passes away, every man in this room either goes and buys a dark suit or you put on a dark suit or a dark sports coat. I hate wearing ties. I hate them. The Lord did not give me a neck. I hate them. But if I have the privilege of doing a funeral for any of you or any of your family, member, family members, I got a lot of ties. I mean, I got every color you can imagine. I will gladly put on a suit and tie because it is customary. So we know what that is. Well, in Corinth, it was customary for married women to wear a head covering as a sign of submission to their husbands. This was true in the church and outside of the church. And religion and dress have a unique relationship. Have you ever seen how Hare Krishnas dress? These people who walk around in outfits like this? Maybe devout Muslims who cover themselves from head to toe, only revealing their feet and a place for their eyes to see? Well, what about others? It's, for example, Orthodox Jews and how they dress and the dress in which they carry themselves. These are modern-day people because of their religion dressing in a certain way. Jewish people aren't alone. 
If you've ever met a Mormon missionary anywhere, I've seen them in Africa and more, they always dress like this. They always have a white dress shirt on, a tie, dark pants, and a name tag that has the word elder and their first name, and then underneath it, it says of the LDS church. That's how they dress. This is required of them. But it doesn't just stop with Mormons. We think about other examples. You ever seen the Amish and how they choose to dress and how they choose to live? The Amish are no different than other organizations. Think about what happens in the Pentecostal holiness churches. Not all Pentecostals, but in apostolic Pentecostal holiness churches, many women do not cut their hair. The length of their hair is a sign of their godliness, and they actually uh, would take that from a literal, I think, pretty inaccurate interpretation of this passage. I do respect the fact that they're willing to live out their convictions, though. They're, they're not alone. The Catholic Church, of course, the women in the Catholic Church who give themselves to the church dress as nuns. But if you were to go this morning to a Baptist church in Romania, the young women in that church would have a head covering. In seminary, Laurel and I went to a mission trip to Romania, and we worshiped with evangelical Christians, Jesus-loving people, Bible-believing people, people whose theology would be very similar to ours, people that we would fellowship with as brothers and sisters in Christ, and they still, in many Eastern European contexts, practice head coverings. And so Laurel, as my wife, had to wear a head covering to worship. I was standing there preparing to preach to a translator, and I accidentally, unconsciously, slid my hands in my pockets during a prayer. The pastor quickly re leaned over and said, Pastor, I'm so sorry. It's seen as an offense for your hands to be in your pocket during a time of prayer. I immediately pulled my hands out. I did not know that. This was a custom of the culture. Recently, I preached at a friend of mine's church. He's an independent Baptist. He's not KJV only, but he really, really likes the KJV. And his church uses the KJV translation. Guess what he asked of me? He said, I'm so excited for you to come and to preach. Would you preach from the KJV? Of course I will. I am his guest. I submit to his leadership, and I don't want the choice of the translation to be a distraction of the sermon that I wanted to deliver to them. So we've seen this over and over. In Corinth, the custom was for married women to cover their heads. Now, there are three places in this passage where he deals with the custom. Look what he says in verse 3, or verse 2. Now, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions. That word comes from an English word, or an, an, a word that we get the English derivative of, like, what is customary. Really, there's a root there in decorum. What is the decor? How do you carry yourself? Look over at verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. But why? Look what he says. Since it is the same as if her head were shaven. In the ancient world, for a woman's hair to be shaven was disgrace and dishonor. Let me try to relate that. While we don't necessarily have that stigma one of the most difficult things that women go through if they're ever called to face intense cancer treatment is the loss of their hair. I've seen many families lovingly shave their head with mom or grandmom, so she's not the only one who loses her hair. We don't have the same level of empathy 
for men. In fact, some of you wear a shaved head and you did us all a favor by stopping that facade that you had hair. You just went on off with it. So we don't have that same stigma. Why do women as a whole, even in our culture, spend tremendously more money on their hair than the men of our culture? Because even in our culture, the beauty of femininity and the flowing hair associated with the female gender are connected. In the ancient world, to shame a woman was to shave her hair. Paul knew this, so he drew from this culture and he says, this is what's happening when you are spiritually and emotionally being insubordinate, when you are rebelling against the order that God has given you. This is why he says in verse 6, for if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful, disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Now look down in verse 13. He ends his discussion about the custom. Judge for yourself. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature, and again, that word there is representing what he sees. Look around, Paul says. Even naturally speaking, most women carry far more hair on their head than their male counterparts. Paul, just deducing that from a snapshot of his culture, makes this assumption. Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. Even in the 1960s and 70s, during so much social revolution, there was always tension in the house between the man of the house and the son around hair length. My grandmother, who is with the Lord today, used to walk up to me when I would grow a beard out during duck season and say, when are you going to shave that mess off of your face? Because in her mind, I needed to be clean shaven and tightly cut. My father likes to wear his hair a little bit longer than she preferred, which proves the point. Customs and culture are influenced here. And Paul is saying there's a root problem, but before we get to the root problem, just look around you. The vast majority of women have longer hair. The vast majority of men wear shorter hair. And that's communicating something about the gender differences and distinctions according to God. But customs are not inerrant. There are customs in your life, in my life, Paul wouldn't understand. There are customs that died in Corinth. To my knowledge, not a single married woman in this room is wearing a head covering. Where did that go? As customs and culture change, we recognize that our allegiance to a custom may change, but our allegiance to a conviction should not. What is the conviction part two? So part one is the custom. We are called to conform to the customs of our culture, which communicate the convictions of our created order. So what's the conviction? Well, it's in one verse. Look at verse three. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. This is God's order for creation. Now, Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, could have gone to anything, yet God led him to God. Let me explain. We believe in the triune God. 
meaning God has revealed himself as Father, Son, and Spirit. This is the bedrock of Orthodox Christianity. If you reject the Trinity, you reject the God of the Bible. You redefine him. Our friends and neighbors in the Mormon faith reject the Trinity, which is why Mormonism is not Christianity. Our friends and neighbors in the faith of Jehovah's Witnesses reject the Trinity. Therefore, we would not say that Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons are simply a denomination of Christianity. We have friends in other denominations who we disagree with on secondary issues, but they accept and believe and affirm the identity of God as revealed in Scripture, being one God revealed in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And as you study the Trinity, what you find is that each person of the Godhead has distinct roles and the way they relate to one another has areas of submission and leadership. For example, the Son came to earth to do the will of the Father, and upon the Son's death and resurrection and ascension, the Spirit was set free to come into the church. Think about the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is praying and dealing with the weight of the world's sin coming upon him at Calvary just a few hours away. And as he is agonizing over this and as he pours out his heart to his Father, which he did often, he says, not my will, Lord, but your will be done. And upon his resurrection, the Father bestowed upon the Son the name that is above every other name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And the Spirit's job in this age is to reveal to people their need for the Son according to the will of the Father. Do you see how within the Godhead, the person of the Father, the person of the Son, and the person of the Spirit have different roles and they relate to one another in submission. The Son submits to the Father. The Spirit submits to the Son. But that also shows you that you can submit in an equal relationship. And this is why God led Paul to use this in his discussion of the relationship between men and women. And in God's created order, he designed men to be the leader of their families and women to submit to the leadership of men in the context of marriage which is why the word wife is very important in verse 3. Look at it again. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now, ladies, I think this is really important to point out. I was having this discussion with my 14-year-old daughter, who is obviously a young lady and on her way to being a woman. I said to her, you know, the Bible does not teach you as a young woman to submit to men. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible does not teach that women are to submit to the will of men. The Bible teaches submission in very unique and powerful relationships. In her life, her first submission is to her father and as an extension of my authority, her mother. And then when she came to Christ, as a Christian, she submits to the will of her heavenly father. So there are two primary authorities in her life. And then upon her choosing to marry one day from a short list of men I have pre-chosen, 
But upon her choosing to marry one day, of her own free will, according to the leadership of God in her life, she will choose to give her life to a man whom she will be called to submit to his leadership. And, And then, as she is an adult in their home together, she only has two more areas of submission. She would submit to her spiritual leaders like every man and woman in here do. You're doing it right now. You're sitting and listening to your pastor. I have no authority that I can force on you. You're choosing to give me the honor of speaking into your life. And you're sitting and you're listening. That is an act of submission that God will use to edify your life. And then tomorrow when you go to work, you're going to submit to somebody. You're going to work for an organization or a person. And you will be accountable to do what they ask you to do to the extent that it does not ask you to break God's law up until the end of your workday. And so this is the relationship that Paul is trying to point out. Why? Well, there's a lot of theories, but here's the point. You and I have the privilege of not being the first generations of Christians in our culture. Even if you weren't raised in the church, even if you're new to Christ, You grew up around Christianity because you grew up in North America. Some of you grew up in international settings, but many of you grew up, and many of you grew up here in the South. Paul wasn't dealing with you. Paul's dealing with a first generation of people that were pagan. Some of these women were temple prostitutes. Others of them were caught up in the legalistic form of Judaism that was ruling the days out of the synagogues. They don't know how to be Christian. They don't know what it means to be free in Christ, yet love and protect your wife as Christ loved the church, to be free in Christ, yet submit to and serve your husband as unto the Lord. They're learning that for the very first time. And so some have theorized that some of these women were enjoying their newfound freedom in Christ and forgetting that their role was still to serve and to honor their husband and to display that submission and to make sure that the other men in the community knew that they had given their heart to one man. Others theorized that some of the women and some of the men were of misguided, less than ideal motives and were trying to draw attention to themselves in worship and not attention to the Lord. So the conviction doesn't change. The role and the responsibilities of wives and husbands matter. And this is where we really make the home turn of this passage. This is where it really unpacks into your life and my life. Look at the third part. The third part, we are called to conform to the customs of our culture, which communicate the convictions of our created purpose. Not all customs can a Christian take part in. Think about it. As a Christian, I don't care what group I join, if there is a significant amount of sinful hazing of new members, a Christ follower can't be a part of that. As a Christian, no matter what my culture says is normal, I'm not going to use your preferred pronoun. You can be a part of that delusion if you want, I'm not. As a Christian, as a Christian, I understand heritage. I can never fly a rebel flag. I have too many men and women who love Jesus in my life of color that 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 symbol means for them something far different than it might ever mean for me, and my love for them must trump any desire I have to keep any former heritage alive. Why would I want to do that to someone else? As a Christian... 
I might look at my son and say, good job, boy, I'm proud of you. I would never use the word boy to address an African-American man because the history of that word in this community was used to demean these men and to rob them of their manhood. We could go on and on and on about customs we can't take part in. But the customs that are in our culture, which we see the created purpose in, we can take part in them. And this is one of them. Presenting ourselves in worship in a way that shows us embracing our masculinity, our femininity, and our commitment to our spouses. Specifically speaking, in the life of a husband, his commitment to the devotion of only his wife. And in the life of a wife, her commitment to the submission and the leadership of her husband. Headship is not lordship. Jesus is a Christian wife's Lord. Her husband is the leader of the home they're building together. And this does not go back to Corinth. This doesn't go back to the fall. This is not just Ephesians. This is Genesis 1, this is Genesis 2, and this is Genesis 3, which is exactly why Paul does something fascinating beginning in verse 7. For a man ought not cover his head since he is the image of the glory of God. We know that man was made in the image of God. But woman is the glory of man. Now, what does that mean? It certainly doesn't mean that woman is less than man because Genesis 1:27 says these words. I'll put them on the screen. So God created man in his own image, the image of God. He created him. Male and female, he created them. We know this. So He's not saying that women are not also created in the image of God. He's saying this. When God wanted to create mankind in his image, he displayed his glory by creating Adam. But when he looked upon Adam, he recognized that Adam had something far different from God. God has never been lonely a day in his life. God's life has never not existed, and there's never been a day where God has not been incomplete. Unlike you or me, God is not dependent on anyone, any person, anything. God did not create because he was lonely or he wanted to rule the world. God created out of his glory to display his kindness and invite us into a relationship with him. A redeemed humanity gives glory and honor to the Lord. I'm grateful that God created, but my God did not create because he was incomplete. Yet when he looked at Adam, he said, he's incomplete. Bless me, he needs some help. <laughs> and so if my glory is displayed in him, an extension of my glory will be that I will create a partner for him so suitable it will be to his glory, which always ends up being my glory. And from Adam, literally, he removed flesh and made woman. Look at verse 8. Verse 7, I'll start back. For a man ought not cover his head, since he is the image of the glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, that's true, but woman from man. Neither was created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now listen, there's three libraries somewhere in Alexandria, in Alexandretta, about that phrase, the angels. The best way to understand that is that God and his angelic presence, his beings are watching worship. 
And Paul wanted them to see that worship and how we behaved in church mattered more than just what's happening in this hour. He wanted them to see what heaven sees. He wanted them to see what the angels see. He wanted it to matter to us. So we have this independent role. Now let me flip it and let's look outside the church for just a minute. I don't have to tell you that there's an attack on gender, on gender roles, on the femininity of men and the masculinity of women. We know that the sexual revolution led to the homosexual revolution, which is now full-blown in the transsexual revolution. I was thinking about this this week. I read an article about Sam Smith. When he first came out, homosexual recording artist, he identifies as a gay man, but he looked like a man. And he has an incredible voice. I've listened to some of his songs. He's got an incredible voice. This is what he used to look like. But this is what he looks like now. And this is what he said about his appearance. He said these words, I'm not male or female. I think I float somewhere in between. Sam Smith. Now, I don't know this man. I don't have any hatred toward him. I don't think anybody who loves Jesus can hate or want to hurt anyone else. I want only one thing for Sam Smith. I would love for him to come into a loving relationship with Christ where he would find wholeness, peace, and healing. I'm preaching today to young men and young women, some of which may struggle with same-sex attraction. You may struggle with a form of gender dysphoria, confusion about where you fit in this spectrum of male and female. I want you to know that this is a place of love, and Christ can help you work through that. He has a purpose and a plan for your life. But our world is blind in their sin. Read Romans 1. When you reject Christ, you've turned over to complete, utter senselessness. And like never before, Christian parents have to teach our children that being made in the image of God also means you fully embrace the gender that God chose for you and that your greatest self is in a right relationship with Christ, manifest in your womanhood or your manhood. And unless you are the group of Christians who are rightly called to a life of singleness, right here in 1 Corinthians, we talked about it several weeks ago, you will then enter into a heterosexual relationship with your spouse of the opposite sex, and you are called to live in that biblical order. And guys, let me just tell you, I'm not being contacted by many young women who struggle with this. It's actually the opposite. They're looking for men to lead them. The problem in the church is not that we have a generation of women who don't want to give their life to a marriage and submit to the leadership of men. The problem in the church is that we have a bunch of grown men acting like boys and aren't worthy of a woman. When you're raising your sons, you make sure they understand. They start out as babies. They then quickly become boys. But you are raising them to be men. Men not to find themselves or to sleep around to their happy. But men to reach adulthood and go to work, take a wife, and have a family. This honors the Lord. And unless a man is called to singleness... He is called to put himself in a position to take, defend, protect, 
nurture, love, build up, and edify a woman who carries the title of his wife, and then she will give him children that he and her will guide together. The message of the church to young men is that if you'll step up, sign up, show up, and grow up, there's plenty of women to choose from who will gladly submit to your leadership. And inside the confines of a nuclear family with a man who celebrates the glory of God in his masculinity and a woman who embraces the glory of God in her femininity, you put women, put children in the best possible position to not only understand who they are, but what they are, male and female, and how they relate to one another. I'm not saying that Christian children raised in Christian's homes can't struggle with sexual confusion or gender confusion. It does happen. I am saying that the best position to put a little heart in so that he or she grows up to know who they are in Christ is with a mother and a father who are working to embrace their roles. And this is why Paul takes it all the way back to Genesis. But it's not just independent roles, it's an interdependent relationship. Look what he says as we close in verse 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as a woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. There's only been one man who's ever come into this world who did not pass through the womb of a woman. That's Adam. Even Jesus was dependent on the womb of a woman. And every child that comes through the womb of a woman, quickly once leaving the womb in birth, is handed to her and at her bosom, he or she finds nourishment. There's not a woman who has had a child that did not need the seed of a man, and there's not a man who has been a child that did not need the womb of a woman. The point is, we need one another. And all that was being threatened by an attitude of people within this church who would not embrace the customs which communicate the convictions of our created order. So how do you take this home? Because I know you're hungry now. Look at your life. Wife, do you display submission, kindness, and modesty to your husband? Husband, are you leading? Young woman, are you respecting yourself enough to demand that young men respect you and the ones that won't, just tell them to move along? And young men, are you carrying yourself in such a way that when you come across a noble young woman of beauty, and praise God, he made them beautiful, but a noble young woman of beauty whom you desire to give attention to, are you living the kind of life that she would find attractive beyond your physical appearance. And when we all work in this beautiful relationship of symbiotic love, we ultimately show that the gospel covers our life. Go live covered by the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to dive into a text that to be honest with you, doesn't need an apology. It does need our respect. 
does need our love and adoration. I have two daughters that you have given me. I long for you to raise up two men that are honorable and committed to you in such a way that I rejoice in my daughters giving their life to me. Like many men in this room, I have sons. I have no false hope that they'll be perfect, but I want them to be men who take, protect, and provide for a woman for your glory. I'm not mad at the world, Lord. I'm not angry at people who are so lost in their confusion, Lord. But I want your church to be clear. I want us to be convicted. I want us to be committed. Your word does not move. Every culture wants to redefine humanity, but it's set in stone. We know that humans are happiest. They're most fulfilled. They delight most in the glory of God. And the glory of God has been shown to us in your Son. And so I pray this morning for the person in this room who may be struggling with their identity, who may be struggling with feelings of same-sex attraction, who may be struggling, pushing against submission to parents, to a husband, to a situation at work, who may have within them that rebel spirit that at times can be used for good, but at times can pull them away from trusting you. I pray that we would be people whose life shows that we are covered by the gospel. And I would just say in prayer today, if you're here and you want to talk to somebody, I'm going to say amen, we're done, we're done. You're going to be dismissed. But that prayer room is open. Not only is there not a struggle you can't walk in there with, I promise you, no matter what your struggle is, you're not going to be the first person who's walked in that room with that struggle. You are not alone. You are loved. You are cared for. There is nothing going on in the darkness of your heart that you can't articulate where you won't find love, confidentiality, grace, and truth. So don't leave today if you want to talk to somebody in that prayer room. Now to you, Lord. Thank you for your word. Edify your church. Help us to be covered by the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. You are dismissed.